So this morning we're jumping back into 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And I wanted you to see that video because I want in your mind right now this question to be kind of, kind of bumping around in there, and that is, who is Jesus now? For some of you, if you've been in the church for a long time, you can probably spit out a bunch of information about who Jesus is, but that's not the question that we're addressing. The question that we're really addressing this morning as we talk about authentic Jesus through this series, Authenticity, and understanding the integration of who Jesus is, is being fully God and fully man. And this, is really the ca- this video captures the question. It really doesn't matter in general who Jesus is. What really matters the most is who Jesus is to you. It's who you say that he is determines everything about your life and your eternity. And so this morning we're going to focus in on that as we jump back in this passage. I was gone the last couple of weeks and on vacation, but I know that Dan Stewart and Larry Powers did amazing jobs. If you didn't get a chance to hear their messages, they're online. Um, you can catch up, but they were not in First John. They had great messages outside of First John, but we're back in today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 12 of First John chapter 5 as we're going to focus in this morning on the, the, this challenge that John is addressing the way that we view Jesus and who he is in our life. So starting in verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves uh, whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the ch- children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, as we look at these passages in 1 John, every time we read it, it's just so much there. But what I want us to kind of capture what's behind the scenes. Remember, John's writing to a group of people in their thinking who believe that you could live in compartments. In other words, the spiritual reality of life and the physical reality of life were two separate entities that never collided which means that you could live all the way that you wanted to physically without any impact on the spirituality that you had in relating to God. These two things were separate, not integrated. And what John's writing to say is, no, 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 no. We are fully integrated as who God's created us to be. We are, are both physical reality and spiritual birth together. And so what is so important in this passage is that these Gnostic thinkers, that's the, the mindset that John was speaking to, also believe this reality. There, there was no way in their mind that there could be somebody who was fully God and fully man. In their mind, the only reality they could see is somebody who was totally divine but not human, or somebody who was completely human and not divine. And you think, well, what's the big deal? That's just semantics. What does it mean if I, as long as I believe in Jesus? It, no, this is the reality. If, if we were to live in that reality, that Jesus was only divine, then he is beyond access to us. 
because he is some lofty God who is far from his people and has no connection or relationship to his creation because he's some distant being. Well, what if he's fully human? That's good enough, but the reality is if he's fully human, then he's not God because then he doesn't have the power and the authority that he said that he had. He has to be both this integration of being fully God and fully man to be fully who he is. And that's why this morning I want to talk about these some key things that John highlights about who Jesus is authentically. The first thing, look at verse 1. Now this may be review for some of us, but this is important. You have to remember this. He is the pathway to God. Now many of us are like, well, I know, I, I get that. He's the only way to God. Listen to what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, whoever loves, has been born of him. So he says, listen, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he is the God-man, he is, he is the God in human flesh, and you understand that, you understand that he is the one that gives you access, he actually gives you the pathway to God. Now this is important because in our mind and in our culture, we obviously, the, cult, the culture that we live in is, is infused with this deep, understanding that all roads ultimately lead to God, correct? Anybody heard that before? And if people don't say that they believe that, we live our lives that way. We choose our own path, we choose our own form of religion, and we believe in the end we will all reunite with some great party in the sky because all these different roads lead up to the same mountaintop. Then Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 there's only one pathway. There's only one way that you access the one and only God, and that's through me. There isn't multiple pathways, and for us to be living in that doesn't mean that we become some kind of religious, legalistic people who kind of look down at everybody else because we think we have the inside scoop, but we live in the reality that we know that there really only is one pathway to God. And any other thing that we do on our own to try to find our way into access to God will only fall short. Because we don't have the access that Jesus has to God. Jesus is the pathway to God. When Kim and I were first married and we were broke and couldn't do any fun, fun things like going to Disneyland or going to, to Universal Studios, we had some friends who came to us one day and said, hey, we'd love to go to Universal Studios with you. And we're like, that would be great. Except for the fact that costs money and we don't have that. And so they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We're inviting you to come with us because we have access. I'm like, what do you mean you have access? You don't work there. Like, no. We don't work there, but we have a really good friend who does work there. I said, are you serious? They said, yeah. He said, anytime that we want to get into Universal Studios for free, he can get us in because he works in the studios. I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah. He goes, we have this special area where we go in the back lot and we park and we meet him and he will actually get us into Universal. At first, I was kind of like, this is a scam. I mean, there's got to be some angle here. I mean, it's, it's like, really? It's that easy? He goes, no, it's that easy. And so he said, okay, let's go. So we set a date, and so me and Kim and he and his wife, we, we all drove to Universal Studios. We, we go in this back area, and we park in where I don't know where we are. We're surrounded with buildings, and we get out of the car, and he goes, he goes let's go, follow me. And so we turn this corner, and his friend's standing there. He goes, oh, you guys ready to get in? And I'm thinking, this is, again, this is not going to really happen. And he goes, yeah, I said, yeah, let's go. So we start following him. We go through all these different buildings and these different passageways, and then we go through this door, and it just looked like any average door, and he opens the door, and literally we walk right into the front of the Jurassic Park ride, if you've been to, to Universal Studios. And he goes, here you go. I'm like, wait a second. Are you serious? We got access? He goes, yeah. You can be in all day. It's, it's free, literally. You, you're, you're as good as any other ticketed person here. You get to go as my guest. And then he shut the door and he went to work. And I'm standing there going, this is for real. <laughs> it's free. And I don't have any money. And I'm standing in Universal Studios. It was this, the coolest thing. And I remember thinking I was such a skeptic that, no, nah, this isn't for real. 
this isn't for real. But my friend says, no, listen, I have a friend who has access, and we can get you in for free, because I knew I couldn't afford what would have cost at the front gate to get in. And when you and I understand the reality that Jesus being the one who has access to God, what I think we are in greater danger of is not being kind of this religious zealot that says, okay, if you're going this pathway, you're going the wrong way, and we come kind of this exclusive club. I think what we're in danger of is I don't think we're so worried about multiple other pathways. I think we try to create our own pathway. I think the reality is one of two things. We look at it and think, I can't get to God because I can't pay for it. I can't afford it. I can't be good enough. Or we think so highly of ourselves that we don't need Jesus to access God because we're good enough on our own that we tried to access him by ourselves. And either way, you can't get there because Jesus said it very clearly. He is the one that has access to God and only him. So why try any other path? Why try your own? Why try to, try to do it yourself when he's the one that gives us that access? Second thing, look at verses four and five. Authentic Jesus, or who Jesus is, is belief in him requires faith. And we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is really important. We are stuck in a mindset in our modern day when we use the term belief we always default to our brains. And so belief is if I have the right information, the right knowledge about who Jesus is, then I get in. Then I get it. Now, when John was writing, and even if you go back to the Old Testament, especially in a Jewish mindset, the word believe didn't necessarily have to do with information that you packed into your brain. Believe had to do with another word that I think is probably more specifically catered to what I think we should understand, and that is the word trust. Because when we think of faith, we think of how do I have faith in believing that Jesus is the Son of God and believing these biblical truths and believing all these things, and if I believe the right way, then I get in. When, when, when a Jewish mindset heard the word believe, they were thinking something different. They were thinking relational. Do I know them? The knowledge is personal. And that's the difference. And see, that's why when Jesus says, I'm the only way to get to God, then that's why, this is what's so beautiful. What Jesus, when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't say, okay, listen, here's the pathway to God. Here's the 10 principles that you follow, and then you get in. What did Jesus say to his initial followers when he encountered them? He said two words. He said, follow me. Follow me, which means don't follow this pathway that I, I highlight for you. And don't follow the roadmap that you want me to give. Don't plug it into your spiritual GPS and follow the turns until you get. He says, follow me. And why does Jesus say follow me? Because when we think that we're following him, sometimes we're trying to follow the principles of who he is or the pathway we think that he's on instead of saying, I'm going to let Jesus lead me where he wants me to go. There's a huge difference. Put it, put it this way. When we're talking about faith, we're talking about not just the knowledge of who Jesus is. We're talking about the personal relational connection to him that causes us to take our lead and our cue from him. So wherever he leads is where we go. We follow. And that doesn't, the, the follower never dictates to the leader where he's going to go. You just follow. Just wherever he goes, you go. Uh, a number of years ago, we were after church one Sunday. We were going to go out with some friends, and they named the restaurant to go to. And uh, I said, well, I'm not sure where that's at. And so could you tell me? And he said, yeah. And he kind of gave me the kind of the crossroads. Like, oh, I said, I know where it is. He goes, no, you can follow me. I said, no, I know where it is. He goes, okay, well, we'll meet you over there. So we hop in our cars, and he's out in front of us. And this is just, I'm telling myself, my own pride. In my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not following him. I know where this restaurant is. And so we start, we drive out of the church parking lot. We take a couple turns. And then I keep going straight, and he turns. And I'm thinking, he's going the wrong way. 
There's no way if you turn here, you can get to where we're going. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, I'm going to beat him. This is all going inside of my head. Like, I don't know why. Why is it so important that we get to the restaurant before them? Like, that really matters in the scope of life, right? Anybody want to admit you've ever done that? <laughs> so we're driving along, and I'm just, I mean, Kim and I are talking, but she has no idea. Internally, I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm going to win, right? Because there's always a competition involved here, right? So it takes us another about 10 minutes, and finally we drive up to the restaurant, and I kid you not, they're standing out in front smiling at us. See, he was doing the same thing in his brain as I was doing in mine. And so we get out of the car, and he goes, where'd you go? I said, well, I was following the, where I thought, you know, was the best. He goes, why didn't you follow me? I said, because when you took that turn, I thought there's no way you could get here faster than me. And if I go, he goes, and this is what he reminded me of. He's, he, at the time, he was a meter reader for the gas company. And this happened to be his area where his route was. And so literally he could drive anywhere with his eyes closed and he could get there faster than anybody else. And he said, I told you, you just should have followed me. And of course, next time he gives me directions, I'm just going to say, okay, I'll follow you. See, the same thing is true. When Jesus says, follow me, we go, okay, yeah, I know where you're going and I'll meet you there. And Jesus says, no, no, you can't get there. You think you can get there, but I will always arrive there first because I know the way to go. That's why Jesus said, and it's so important, he says it to us today. He says, follow me. And what do we want? We want to create a religion that has principles and is based on morality and good behavior. And Jesus says, follow me. All those things, they'll get taken care of. But follow me because I will get you where you need to be. Third thing, look at verses 7 and 8. Understanding who Jesus is also means we understand that he is fully God and he is fully man. Now, this is, this is the key thing. So John says in, in verse 7-8, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, let me explain. There's a number of terp- interpretations of what John's talking about when he references these things, water, blood, and the Spirit. And there's a lot of great argument on what could they be, but... but but what I'm going to give you is one interpretation of what this could mean, and I think it's pretty probably, it could be pretty fair to understand this is what John's communicating. So if we look at the background, what is John uh, going after? He's going after this Gnostic thinking that says there's no way that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's got to either be divine or he's got to be human, but he cannot be both together. So when John's saying this, he's, he's trying to prove his case to them because Gnostic thinkers had this belief system. They acknowledged who Jesus was, but this is the way they acknowledged him. They believed that up until he was baptized, he was human. But once he was baptized, he became divine. And he was divine all the way through his ministry, through his miracles, and all the things that he did. But then when he came to the cross, he once again became human. So it's like he checked in and out of his divinity. That's kind of what their belief system is. So John comes along and says, no, no, no. All three things testify in an agreement that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so he references water which is a symbol of baptism. So at the baptism of Jesus, he was fully, fully God, fully man. Blood represents what? His death on the cross. At that moment, he was fully God, fully man. And the Spirit, which later on we'll talk about, who is actually deposited in every person who follows Jesus, testifies internally inside of us that the truth about Jesus is that he's fully God and he's fully man. So John's making this reference point, and he's saying, listen, to understand and embrace who Jesus is, this is the reality of who he is. And you can't compartmentalize him, and you can't separate him, and he can't be schizophrenic, in a sense. No offense to that disease, but that's what they want. They wanted a Jesus who checks in and out of identities and realities. But Jesus was consistently who he was throughout his time on earth, and who he has been for all of of eternity. 
Because although he took on human form, somehow he didn't somehow become different. And because of that reality, you and I have to understand uh, something that is hard for us to buy into. So many times we find a disconnect with Jesus because all we think about is the divinity of Jesus. We think about how he's God. And if he's God, he can't understand me. He can't relate to me. He can't know what I'm going through. He can't be tempted like me. He can't fully appreciate what it means to be human. But the reality is, because he was fully human, he can appreciate every bit of what it means to be a human being. That's the beauty of it. That he was both. And then some would say, well, if he's human, then he really has no power in my life because he's just like me. He can't do anything to save me. And that's the beauty of his divinity is because he is with us, but he is also above us and beyond us. It's this tension that we struggle with. We really struggle in having this reality that Jesus could be both. We want him to be one or the other, but he's both. Put it this way. This doesn't do justice, but this is kind of what we don't see this in sports like we used to, but this used to be more of the norm. So a number of years ago in all kinds of sports, a lot even in baseball, when baseball was kind of was on the rise in the early 1900s, you would see this, this thing called player-coach, where someone would be like the, ca- the manager or the coach, but they also would be a player at the same time. Now, the, that doesn't happen very frequently anymore, but it used to be very popular. In fact, the reality of that was to have somebody who was gifted enough to be a really good player, but had enough wisdom to be able to coach all the other players. Can you imagine a manager who has the ability to go up and hit a home run, but yet can tell which pitcher needs to go into the game next? People had that capacity, and so they were able to manage the game from the dugout and from the field. In fact, going back to 1948, anybody a Cleveland Indian fan? Anybody want to admit that you're a Cleveland Indian fan? I know we're way too far. Cleveland's kind of been in the news lately. Nobody wants to admit that they rooted for Cleveland. So Cleveland hasn't won the World Series since 1948. In fact, that's why them winning the NBA title was a big deal, because they haven't had a championship in decades in any sport. But if you go back to 1948, there was, there was a player that was actually one of the last successful player coaches. And Lou Boudreau was the last kind of main player coach. This guy was amazing. Because not only was he a player coach, but in 1948, he was the MVP of the American League. And his team won the World Series. All while he was a player and a coach. I think that's like the ultimate season. Can you imagine? You're the winning manager and you're the MVP, and you win the World Series. I don't think it gets any better than that, right? But that's this reality that at all, at all times, although he may have been playing second base or maybe playing left field, he was still the manager. He may be sitting on the bench, managing from the, the bench, but he's still a player because he can go into the game at any time. At all times, he was fully player and fully manager. Jesus, at all times, when he walked this earth, was fully God and fully man, which gave him the capacity to not only understand our human condition, but save us from it. It's beautiful. It's incredible. That's who Jesus is. Listen to what Paul writes about this reality of who he is, because again, this is the tension we live in. We want Jesus to be this or that, but not both. That's why when we, we live in this tension, we want, is Jesus attainable? Yes and no. Is he accessible? Yes and no. Is Jesus the master? Yes or no. Or is he just a servant? Yes or no. He's both. Is he present or is he absent? He's both. Is he going to walk physically into this room today? Probably not. But does his spirit live inside of each one of us? Absolutely he does. 
So he is both present and absent. So what does is, what is Paul write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? And this is in the paraphrase uh, put together by Eugene Peterson called The Message, where he writes this. He says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. Listen, he said, he had equal status with God, which means he was God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave becoming human. Having become human, he stayed human, and it was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. Isn't that beautiful? He was fully God, but he didn't cling to that. It doesn't, and it doesn't say, you can, in fact, I like what Eugene Peterson says. It didn't say he set aside his deity. He set aside the privileges of deity. He chose not to use who he was as God for his advantage, but became a human being like you and I. Now, I know this can be a little heady and a little theological, but this is so important because that's the beauty of who Jesus is. He is the only one in all of human history who has the claim of truly being God, but truly being human. All other leaders of sex, religions, and cults are purely human beings. Jesus is the only one who separates himself from the rest. And then the fourth thing, look at verses 9 and 10. Belief in him comes by the Spirit. And this is what I was talking about a little earlier. John says this, if we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has uh, is made, out to, made him to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. What is John talking about? How do you have a testimony inside of you? Something that is objective to you, not subjective, but is inside of you that testifies of something that is true. The only thing that you can have or the only person you can have is the Holy Spirit living inside of you that says this is what's true. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as what? The Spirit of Truth. So what John is saying, in a sense, the only way you can truly acknowledge who Jesus is is through the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't just come to that conclusion on your own. There has to be this testimony of God's power that opens our eyes to this reality. And it happens in us when eventually we fully surrender ourselves to a reality that maybe we don't completely understand, but we believe by faith in the knowledge of who Jesus is that we step into something and have to be all in to do that in order for God's Spirit to live inside of us and the light to go on to say, okay, now I get who Jesus is. Now I understand. I've heard of him, but I really didn't know him. But now I know him. And if that's, that's true, that means that there's this supernatural dynamic that requires of you and I the ability to say, okay, if I'm truly going to believe into Jesus, then I have to be all in and fully in to experience that because I have to be open to God's Spirit actually working inside of me. And God's Spirit isn't going to come and work in against our own will. God's not going to force you into a belief system, but He is going to allow His Spirit work to work in us when we are open to what God wants to do. 
But there's that moment where you step over the line of, okay, I'm going to, I'm not, it's not that I check out with my brain. It's not that I just ignore my, my objections, but there comes that moment, that moment of desperation. And we can call it the moment of salvation for many of us, where you finally step over the line into faith and you actually believe Jesus, who is who he says he is. And then you surrender your life full. It's that, that reality that you may tiptoe into the shallow end or into the tide because you're afraid that the water's too cold, but eventually to be full immersed, what do you have to do? You have to get in over your head. And that's faith. And that's believing in who Jesus is. And that's that step that you have to have. When you and I slowly make our way towards Jesus, but never fully invest into who he is, we will really never believe that he is who he says he is. You can't. Because you don't have God's spirit working in you. So put it this way. When, when Jordan was probably, oh man, six years old, seven years old? No, maybe a little bit older than that. We got a bike for him, and, and uh, we were up in Oregon, and uh, the city in Newburgh where we lived, there, there, was, there, had a, there was a valley kind of, and then there was a hillside, and so when you went out on your bike, you could get to all kind of elevation, all kind of crazy and fun stuff, and tiring things too. So one day, Jordan and I took this bike ride, and so we went up into the hills, and we went up to the highest hill that is in that city, and it was on, at the top of the hills, the street called Springbrook, and everybody in New- Newburgh knows Springbrook at the top of it. And so, so we get up to the top, and, and it, is, it is probably a half mile from the top to the bottom. And I don't know what the percentage in terms of the grade is, but it is steep. And as you're going down that hill, there's a couple of different intersections where the other, other like vehicles have stops. You don't. But if you're going to go down Springbrook on a bike, you can never use your brake. Because if you do, you won't ever get any momentum. But once you get going, your brake, forget about it. You're, you're going to be at 45 to 50 miles an hour in the blink of an eye. And so I took Jordan, and he was young, and I thought, this would be fun. <laughs> Notice Kim wasn't with us. It was just me and Jordan. And so we got up to the top, and I said, Jordan, let's do it. He's like, Dad, do you think we do it? I said, yeah, listen, listen, do not touch your brake. I said, as soon as I go, you go, okay? We're going to go. In fact, I thought... If he crashes, I probably need to see what's happening, so I'm going to let him actually go first. So I'm not trying to look over my shoulder. Is my son dead? I'll just see him die in front of me. Like, that's, that's even better, right? But I wanted to make sure I could see what's going on, and so I said, okay, you go. So we kind of counted to three, and Jordan just goes, and he lets loose, and he starts flying, and I'm like two seconds behind him. And so we're just like within like the first probably 100 feet so steep, you just feel like you could feel the wind going. And then you, about halfway down the hill, you know, okay, I've reached the point of no return. I am completely out of control. It doesn't matter what happens now. My brakes won't work. If a car comes and cuts in front of me, I can't stop in time. So I'm all in. And let me tell you, it was the most exhilarating thing for both Jordan and I. It was. Because you realize you're at this point where, like, I can do nothing to stop myself. The only thing that's going to stop me is the gravity at the end of the hill that starts to, again, climb. That's the only thing. And so I just have to be in and enjoy this and go along for the ride. And whatever happens, happens. What is that? That's faith. Some of you are thinking, that's stupidity, (laughs) right? That's faith. Because it's saying, you know what? I don't know all of what's going to happen, but I know I'm all in. I know I'm going to go down this mountain. I'm going to let it, let it all fly and be all in. And it is so exhilarating. I think that's what I'm going to touch on in a moment, the last point. I think some of us have never experienced the reality of who Jesus is because we're still so hesitant to be fully into the life that he has for us. Jesus said it himself. If you want to find life, you have to do what? You have to lose it. You have to let go of it. 
But if you hang on to it, you will crush the very life that you could have through Jesus. But Jesus has this life of exhilaration that goes far beyond what we can expect and what we can describe if we are what? All in. If we're all in, and that means we're allowing God's Spirit to get all of us as He works in our life. And then finally, look at verses 11 and 12. So the last point is this. He is the author and the guarantee of life. John says in verses 11 and 12, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What is Jesus talking about? Another thing that we need to unlearn in our minds. When we read through the scriptures and we see the phrase eternal life, our default is, oh yeah, that starts when I die. When I come to Jesus, I pray the prayer, so I have eternal life, so it means when I die, I don't really die, I go to be with Jesus. Here's the reality. If that's our definition of eternal life, everybody has eternal life. It's just a matter of where that eternal life will be spent. That's not the definition of eternal life. Eternal life starts now. Eternity doesn't start at some point in the future. The reality of life starts today. The reality of life starts when you and I embrace Jesus. It isn't that we, and the reason that's important is because sometimes our faith gets defined by if I just pray the prayer and I give my life to Jesus, then I just hang on for dear life. I try to manage my sin to be as best I can be so that someday I don't compromise enough to miss out on this reward and go to heaven with Jesus. And that becomes Christianity. Read through the book of Acts. You won't find that kind of mentality anywhere in Jesus' earliest followers. They were racing down Springbrook at 60 miles an hour with their hair on fire following Jesus, not fearing that they would mess up because they were all in. Jesus is the one who is the author and guarantee of life. And what's the life he's talking about? It's the dimension of life that begins the moment you and I wake up to the reality of who he is and what he's done for us because of our brokenness and our sin and his life and his death and his resurrection and what that means and the life he gives. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you would have life and have it what? To the full, the fullest capacity of life. Fullness of life doesn't start when this life ends. It begins now. And that's the reality, and that's what I th- should make our faith and understanding of Jesus very appealing to the culture that we live in. Why? Because we finally came to life. We finally came to life. We're different, not because we've manufactured, but we've come to life. And someone looks at us and goes, wow, you, you in comparison, you seem like you were dead before, but now something's changed in you. There's some life that's breathed in you. Now you're a different person. That should be something that people desire. Not like, well, you know what? I'm just trying to make sure I don't sin. I'm trying to be a really good person. I'm trying to make sure that God's not mad at me because that's the reality of some of our faith. But no, there's something so much bigger and so much more. And what we think, and and I'll conclude with this, but what I think sometimes we say, yes, Jesus, you came to give us life and life to the full, abundant life. We use all these terms. And then you and I begin to fill in the blanks of what that life looks like. And we tell God, this is what fullness of life looks like to me. We do this all the time. And we're really good in our culture. We tell God, fullness of life means I have lots of money. We do that. If I'm happy, God, if you will just bless me and give me financial gains so that I can have the house that I want to have and drive the car that I want to drive and have the income that I want to have and live a life that I want to live because that's the abundant life. If I would just be wealthy and I'd have the money, and when I say wealth, I'm not talking about somebody, it's the other person, it's all of us in this room. Because whether you know it or not, you are wealthy compared to the world's standards. 
And we define that. That's why, what, everyone thinks they want to move to America. Why? Because all the rich people live there, and all the rich people are always happy, aren't they? No. Go to Haiti, then you'll find happy people. Go to Africa, then you're going to find people who are happy because they don't have all this stuff. So we define it as money. You know the other thing that we do, and I'm not trying to step on any toes, and I'm not taking any stance. We align ourselves with a political leader or party, and we think that's happiness. We do it in our culture. We think, oh, man, if if my party gets into the White House or my candidate wins the election, then I'm going to be happy. And, oh, God forbid, if the other one wins, then I'm going to (laughs) die. I've been in the church long enough. It does not matter who's in the White House. Jesus is still on the throne. And we need to live that reality. So let me hear, let let me just put this in. I'm not taking a stance. If you are a Trump supporter and Hillary wins, it's not the end of the world. If you're a Hillary supporter and Trump wins, it's not the end of the world. You know why? Because Jesus is the authority over any person who has authority in this world. And I'll just tell you, when I was up in Oregon and when Obama won, because I know we tend to be conservative as Christians, I had so many people in our church and community saying, the sky is falling, I'm moving to Canada because I can't survive because Obama is president. And so I usually don't write, and I posted on Facebook, and I never do that because I got so fed up with this mentality. And I never do this. And I had five of my friends who are pastors around the country said, can I repost? I'm like, yeah, post, post, post. And like hundreds and hundreds of times because I said, enough. The church has stood the test of time. Jesus is still on the throne. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. But we think that, wow, if this person, this candidate gets in, then I'm going to be happy. Sorry, the same thing will happen the next four years that's happened the previous four years. And there will always be negatives. And it doesn't matter. Now, I know, I'm, I know it's important to vote. Hear me. I understand that. But don't put your faith in a candidate. Don't put your faith in a political party. Put your faith in Jesus. He's the only one that doesn't change. I know I'm trying not to step on toes, but here's another reality of what we define. We tell God this is what happiness looks like. It looks like morality. So we make morality the end all for Christianity. The end all for Christianity is who? Jesus. And I've said this before. Morality is not the goal of Christianity. Jesus is. Morality is the byproduct of following a God who knows what it is to be human and knows what the right way to live is. And the reason I say it is, is we make morality, the champion morality, and if everybody would just be moral, then our, our society would be wonderful and we would all be happy. No, because we would all still be sinners. It didn't work for the Jews. They couldn't live up to the law. They were miserable. And Jesus comes along through grace And helps them realize you can't be perfect, but I, through my sacrifice, can reunite you with God. So it's not our money, it's not our politics, it's not our morality. And most certainly, and I say this again, not to try to be offensive, but I've lived in this city long enough. The good life, the life that Jesus came for, is not the life of comfort that we've come to accustomed to be, to have in our city. Simi Valley, Moore Park, is based on the assumption that I deserve to live a comfortable life. That's why we live here. Went out yesterday to the valley to Jordan. Jordan's buying his first car, and we're sitting with a guy who's, he's not from our country. He's living out in the valley, and I said, I live in Simi Valley, and you would have thought I lived in, like, on the throne. He's like, oh, Simi Valley. I love Simi Valley. I'm like, have you been to Simi Valley lately? No, he goes, I have a friend who lives in Moore Park. And he goes, yeah, as, as though like the, the valley is like hell and Simi Valley is like heaven. That's the way he was talking. But in his mind, he was thinking like, if I could ever like get enough money to live in Simi Valley, then I, then I would be happy. 
I don't know, has it worked for us? Why? Because we think the goal is comfort. And the danger of that is when we, in, 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 we invest ourselves in a comfortable life and we forget that Jesus has a different definition of life. In fact, his definition of life has discomfort as a part of it. And that discomfort actually breeds life in us, whereas comfort puts us to sleep and makes us miserable because we think we're entitled to it. Now I'll step off my soapbox and move on. Let me close with this. Paul said something in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 that is so important. Because Paul, by definition of the culture that he lived in, would have been considered a huge success. In everything that Paul did, he was successful. And because of that, when people before, especially before he came to Jesus, in the religious community, Paul was the pinnacle. Because he was not only a Jew, not only someone who lived by the law, but he was a Pharisee. He had reached the pinnacle of the religious society. And had accomplished so much and was very, very adamant about destroying the work of the church and who Jesus was. And so he was applauded and people would put him up on a pedestal. And then he encounters Jesus and listen to what he says about his own life and his own experience. Again, this is from the paraphrase uh, put together by Eugene Peterson called The Message. He says this. He says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I am tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master. Firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. And Eugene translates something that Paul would have probably been pretty crass in saying, and he uses the term dog dung. That's what Paul compares what he had. He says, I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting. There's that word, trust. Trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there is, was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Do you capture what he's saying? All of the accomplishments, all of the wealth, all of prestige, all of the honor, all of the achievements, all the things that all of humanity says, this is life. He said, no. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus, what? In his death, life, resurrection, suffering. What was, what was Paul describing? When Paul said yes to following Jesus, he followed him in everything. He didn't say, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you if it looks like this. No, he said, I'll follow you wherever you lead me. And that's the key for us today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, you can answer that question for yourself. Have you chosen him to follow him without reservation? Have you chosen to follow him without qualification? Have you chosen to follow him without telling him how he's going to lead you? Then you'll know who Jesus is because in your life, you will not only believe, but you will live out. He is fully God because he has authority in my life, but he's also fully man because he understands me because I'm human. That's who Jesus is. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. In fact, I know we're going to run long, and I think I'm going to ask the worship team just to, to refrain on the last song um, because I don't want us to go too long, but I think what we want to do in closing is very important. So if you could just close your eyes because I think it's important for us to respond today to that question that we started with. 
Who is Jesus to you? Not what can you say about Jesus. I can say he's the son of God. I, I can say that even he's fully God and fully man. I can say all these things, but who is he to you in your life? Is he the one that is the author of life to you? Is he the one that is so valuable because you realize of in your brokenness and in your pain and in your struggling, the only answer that you have is him. It's his death that pays for your brokenness. It's his resurrection that brings you back to life. It's his power that guarantees that you could be with him starting today and through all of this life and then the rest of all of eternity. Is he the most important one in your life? I'm going to ask if you are here today and if you're honest with yourself, you would say, you know what? I have never really made a kind of commitment in my life where I've let off the brakes. I've jumped into the deep end. I've said I'm all in to follow Jesus. But I've made little decisions along the way. I've kind of inched closer, but I've never taken the leap. I've never given my life over. I've never laid down my life in order to follow Jesus. But you're realizing that the life that you've embraced is not life at all. It's actually more closer to what death looks like. And you're realizing for the first time there's a whole dimension of life that Jesus is offering to you, yet you haven't accepted it yet. You haven't embraced it yet because you haven't fully embraced him and his invitation to you to follow him without reservation. If I'm describing you today, I'm going to ask you to do something very important. This is not a sign to me, but this is a sign to Jesus. And that is, if your desire is to say, I am all in to give my life to Jesus, and I know I've never gone to this depth of that before, that I've never been fully in, I've been partially in, but never fully in, then I'm going to ask you to do one simple thing. I'm going to ask you to raise both your hands right now. And the reason you're doing that is a sign before the Lord. You're saying, I I want to give my life fully to you. I'm I'm tired of being halfway in. But also, as you're putting your hands up, it's a sign of your own surrender. And in surrendering, you're saying to Jesus, I surrender to you now. I give you my life because I want to access the fullness of life that you bring. And just keep your hands up and do that and, and begin to talk to him and begin to tell him what your desire is and the points of surrender that you are giving over to him right now and what that looks like in your life. Thank you, Jesus. And then those where you know you've, you've made that decision, in fact, you've made a life-changing decision and you've seen the impact in, in the reality of how you live, but you know that there's, today has come as a reminder. It's, it's come as the Holy Spirit has, in a sense, kind of nudged you again and said, hey, 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 remember who Jesus is. Remember who he is in your life. Remember the impact he brings, the life he brings to you every single day. And he's saying to you, he's calling you back again to embrace him for who he is. He is the God of the universe who has authority over everything and has the power to save and to forgive and to redeem and to heal. But he's also the human being that walked the planet, that knows your brokenness and knows your temptation and knows your suffering and knows the difficulty of what the human condition is. And all of that combined means he is the one and only who can not only understand you, but he is the only one that can save you. 
And so, Jesus, this morning, as we come to a conclusion, we ask that you would once again come and you, by your spirit, would testify deep within inside of us who you are, that the truth that maybe we haven't discovered yet and are discovering today or the truth that we've forgotten is now come again, that you are God and you are man. And just as Paul wrote that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, let that be true of us today. Every day that we live, we live that you are the Lord of our lives, that you are the Lord of our city, that you are the Lord of our world, that you are the Lord over our sin and our brokenness, over our relationships, over our finances, over our illnesses, over every struggle that we have. You are the Lord. We pray that we would embrace that and we would live that out in Jesus' name.